Now, don't tell me this doesn't do something for you. Oh, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were my wife. You see, my wife has the exact same shape. The best thing about it is that at some point, it ends. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peak. Here with me today is Jose from the YouTube channel, Jose. Uh, Jose is a really amazing content creator whose channel focuses on sitcom retrospectives, which is why I chose to have him on the very first episode of Peak Show. So, Jose, welcome to the show, and I want to start with a fun question, which is when did you peak? Ooh, that's that's a great question. First of all, thank you for having me. And I feel like, you know, being the inaugural guest on this podcast, I'm peaking right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very flattering. Sure. Um, I, 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 to be, you know, to actually answer the question, I like to think I haven't peaked yet. I, or at least I hope. Um, otherwise, next couple of decades are going to be pretty rough, so... <laughs> Well, you know, uh, having known you for some time, I would uh, I would agree with you, and I would also say that the content you're putting out right now uh, is certainly peak Jose, uh, or um, and if it's not peak Jose, then I'm excited for peak Jose to come. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and what you've been doing on there for the past couple of years? Oh, thanks. Uh, that was very kind of you to say. First of all, <laughs> um, so yeah, the channel I started oh like three years ago now. Uh, initially, it was just a way for me to get angry at people on YouTube. I'm sure you're well aware, YouTube's got some pretty shady characters on there putting a lot of uh, noxious messages out there. So I decided, you know what, with the rise of all this horrible fascism, etc., I should probably push back on that a little. And uh, yeah, so I just started creating videos responding to terrible people. And then I decided one day, you know what? I should make a video about a TV show. Um, or rather, I decided to watch the show Roseanne, which, um, and I realized this would be a good idea for a video because even though Roseanne Barr is uh, a problematic person to say the least, her show was actually really good. And I figured, you know, I should make a video about this. And when I made that video, it kind of blew up my channel. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make more of these videos. And I've been making several of them since I've probably only got about six or seven because they take a long time. These are like deep dives into these shows, uh, but I love doing them. People really enjoy them. And uh, yeah, it's been a great ride so far. Yeah. And uh, when you were telling me about you're basically just watching sitcoms end to end, I, all I can imagine is the work it takes. And I know people like to say like, oh, that's not work, you know, watching TV, but it, it really is a lot of work. And that's why uh, I thought it would be fun to have you on this uh on this inaugural podcast, because we are talking about uh, kind of uh, the completest nature of the way we watch sitcoms. Uh, so obviously today we're talking about Malcolm in the Middle, and I'm glad you brought up Roseanne because uh, I find there are some parallels with uh, with Roseanne as a sitcom. Uh, but um, I figure I should uh, you should tell me a little bit about um, you know your relationship to Malcolm in the Middle when you started watching it because obviously you just did a fantastic video essay on Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, so yeah, tell us about you and Malcolm. Okay, well I remember first watching the show when it first aired. Uh, like a lot of people, I was a big fan of The Simpsons, and of course that meant I was watching everything on Fox on a Sunday night, like 
King of the Hill, the X-Files, all that stuff. And uh, then Malcolm in the Middle showed up and it was very different. At first, I thought I wasn't going to like it because it didn't look like other shows. It had a single camera setup and no laugh track. And it was, you know, things that are the norm now for TV show, or at least for sitcoms, uh, were very new and different then. And I remember begrudgingly liking those early episodes. And it turns out the show is actually pretty good. Um, and I watched it through most of its original run. Uh, I think like a lot of people, though, I kind of dropped off in later seasons. Um, so when I made my retrospective on it, I was able to revisit those old episodes I had seen and the new ones I hadn't. And uh, I feel like I have a more rounded appreciation of the this show. Yeah, um, I... I was somewhat similar to you. Um, I I was born in 89, so I would have been 10 years old when it debuted in mid-season. And like you, I was addicted to TV shows on um, Sunday nights. Uh, you know, I loved The Simpsons. The Simpsons kind of raised me. And as a young, uh, flourishing bisexual, I loved The X-Files at around that age. <laughs> uh, and um, I was excited for Malcolm Middle because being 10 years old and being an honor student who was... Uh, constantly shuddered between, you know, advanced reading groups and also special classes because teachers didn't always know what to do with me. I thought like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a show that sees me. Um, and I will say that I love Malcolm in the Middle, but I also often felt very uncomfortable watching it. And I, I feel like that's because of the, the money struggles that were depicted in the family and how miserable and tense everyone was all the time. And to be frank, a lot of it really hit home for me. Um, I think by the time I entered high school was when I somewhat dropped off um, because I saw it as too goofy and I saw it as a little too uh, slapsticky, especially with Hal. Uh, now when I look back, I actually think that the goofiness and slapstickness of it was really fun and lighthearted. And I loved how the show just seemingly had no pride in the best way. Um, <laughs> so I, I definitely uh, completed it and actually saw it through the end of its run, probably when I was around my early 20s. So uh, let's dive a little deeper into Malcolm in the Middle. It premiered on Fox on January 9th of 2000 as a mid-season show, and it was created by Linwood Boomer, who was born in 1955, so he is a boomer. Um, he's a Canadian actor turned writer-producer. My favorite little bit about his history is that he was also a writer on what I think is one of the most underrated sitcoms, which is Night Court. You know, I hear that sometimes, I gotta say. I, it's it, not a popular opinion. I, I love John Larroquette, uh, but I will say it is weird to have a little 10-year-old walking around who loves John Larroquette. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I said, I was a weird kid. Uh, but uh, Boomer based the premise off of his life, not only being a boy genius, but also growing up distinctly lower middle class. Um, so Boomer initially described his vision as self-serving and exaggerating the flaws of his mother. And yet I actually feel like it came out quite real and with uh, such a great deal of affection for the mother. Uh, Boomer was the only showrunner for the series up until season seven. Uh, he stepped back into an executive consultant role while Matthew Carlson took over the room. And Carlson was a veteran of the show and also a writer on The Wonder Years. He initially pitched the show to UPN, which passed, and it was eventually picked up by Fox. You get the Sunday night treatment. It was really the best he could have asked for. Um, and Malcolm, like you said, it was unique at the time uh, because of its uh, single camera setup. Um, it wasn't the very first, but it was really uncommon, especially on conventional network television. We were still four years away from The Office. 
And at the time, Friends was still one of the hottest shows on TV, or the hottest show on TV. We were just two years removed from Seinfeld, so we were really in laugh track multicam town. Um, and where it was always uh, pretty unique as well, it's not the first sitcom that explored being a working class family. Uh, of course, you had at the time very revolutionary Roseanne, and also the early seasons of The Simpsons were certainly that, but this was a very warts and all uh not always soft depiction of living in the lower middle class. Um, oh, and then of course there was Malcolm's breaking of the fourth wall narration style, which sometimes did get past to the other characters, but for the most part, it was Malcolm providing the color commentary. Uh, so over the course of its run, uh, it had 31 Emmy nominations and seven wins. The lion's share of those nominations went to Jane Kaczmarek, although she never won. In fact, the only acting Emmy the show ever took home was for the late Cloris Leachman for her guest appearances as Lois's mom. Um, there were seven Golden Globe nominations and no wins. Again, Kazmarek getting the most attention uh, and it won a Grammy for They Might Be Giant's Boss of Me. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird that that show had so much critical acclaim uh, and Jane Kazmarek got so much attention for her role, but she never really won any awards for it, which I thought was uh, a real shame. And, and like, I can't even remember the women she lost to. I know like one of them was Helen Hunt. I think she lost uh, Jennifer Aniston one year, and it's like nothing against them, but their roles were not nearly as interesting, I think, as uh, Lois. <laughs> I blanked on her name there for a second. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm I'm very glad that Cloris Leachman did get her recognition, and um, having just recently lost Cloris Leachman and been looking back through her filmography a bit, like she was such an amazing actress, and I do love that she was always willing to just do the weird stuff, like. A lot of older actresses or actors have their period where it's like, this is my don't give a shit period and I'm just going to be the be the wacky character actor. And Cloris Leachman kind of always did that. So I really respect that about her. I'm glad she got her recognition, but I agree with you. I think Jane Kaczmarek was a little robbed. Um, Brian Cranston also, uh, who would go on to sweep every single Emmy and Golden Globe season with his work on Breaking Bad. I was shocked looking through it that he didn't have more nominations for his work because I think Hal is just so delightful. Yeah, I think he definitely got overshadowed. I feel less bad for him just because his career exploded in later years and, you know, he's got plenty of awards. Yes. But at the time, he was definitely not really acknowledged as much as uh, Jane Kaczmarek or even like Frankie Muniz got a little more attention. Not that that was undeserved, but I thought Brian Cranston did a really great job too. Yeah, I mean, we were really, and I think to an extent we still are, but we were super obsessed with precocious child actors in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and I mean, I will say it, it, it's both a shame and also not that much of a surprise that Frankie Muniz didn't go on to do that much. I mean, he's now more famous as a race car driver uh, and I think kind of light MAGA. Is that correct? Like, I couldn't quite find information on that. Uh <laughs> I hope not. I know but, he uh, like, identifies as a Republican, but he's also like, wear a mask because it's safe. So, you know, there's, <laughs> there's shades to everything. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at the young actors like that, like that become very well known for a role, like he was very, very well known for Malcolm. He did the Agent Cody Banks movies, but it is really, really hard to transition into adult roles. And I don't even know if he had an interest in that, frankly. Um, 
the other young actors you really don't see anywhere else as well. I know Justin Burfield is more into the producing game, I believe, and he's doing quite yeah, well himself. <laughs> he moved into that a little bit after the show ended. Uh, I think he was working with Virgin and their uh, production company, although they folded a little while back, so I don't know what he's up to at the moment. And I know you uh, said there was recently a reunion, and I didn't have a chance to tune into that, but have we... Through that, gained any insight into what uh, Eric Persolvin is up to? Because he's kind of off the map now. See, that's the interesting thing. He was the only one who didn't show up. Uh, everyone came back for this little, uh, it was like a Zoom thing because Zoom reunions were all the rage in 2020. And they reenacted the uh, the first episode, Raising Money for Charity. And uh, it was organized by Brian Cranston. It seems like the show really meant a lot to him, which I think is really sweet. And um, yeah, all the actors came back except for Eric Persullivan. And I get the impression he's not terribly uh, fond of having been a child actor. Like I, there was some, he's like not on social media. He doesn't make many appearances. I think I found less than half a dozen photos of him as an adult. He's uh, very much stepped away from that world. I mean, I, I would say that it's good to do that before things get bad and not to imply that things will always get bad. Um, but um, my, my only hope is that it's not because anything particularly upsetting or traumatic or awful happened to him. And I just uh, I like to picture him just having a good, quiet life now. So uh, we miss you. But uh, and and Dewey was by the end of it, one of my favorite characters. So, um, yeah. It, so I guess this is a good trans transition into just what we liked about it. So here's uh, where we're going to enter a bit of a free for all and talking about the journey of the show. So um, I, I can't emphasize for myself enough how well I identified with the working class nature of the family um, and with the dynamic that their class status created. Um, one thing I especially liked was because Malcolm and Reese were on the verge of being teenagers and they were teenagers for most of the show. Um, showing the teens as um, showing the teens of a working class family is not something you see very often. Like um, there's this thing in a lot of shows with teenagers where you realize quite early on that the writers don't actually like writing teenagers because the restrictions on teenagers are really hard. Like they can't drive places often. They can't afford a lot of things. So they'll either make the teenagers super rich or make their parents never around or whatever so that we have an explanation for them taking a road trip or having a big party. And, Malcolm and Reese, it's like, no, like, we don't have our own car. It's not a matter of our car is not as good as the other kids' cars. We don't have a car. You know, I have to work at my mom's drugstore. Uh, Reese was, uh, Reese had all sorts of jobs. I know he was working uh, at a meat processing plant. He worked as a janitor. Uh, Malcolm worked at the drugstore with Lois. Like, um, it's working class teens is so a thing you don't see unless it's like this really over-dramatized version of it. So I loved that you saw it play out and what does a working class childhood look like and i like how they emphasize this isn't just like oh the the kid needs to save up for a thing like so he can buy a fancy new toy or some kind of object like i need to get some money for the big dance coming up like when malcolm had to work at that drugstore they, it was his parents sitting him down and saying like look we need the money we're in trouble yeah like your dad just lost his job and you need to work now. Which on that note, there, uh, there is, I have in my notes here, I love that we never find out what hell does for a living. Um, not just because it's, it's always fun to have one of those where the hell is Springfield jokes, which, uh, you know, we also have established in 
We never find out their name. Like on, on paper, it's Wilkerson, but there really is canonically no last name. Um, and we don't know where the show is set either. But by not showing what Hal does, I find that's a really true to childhood thing because how many of us who's had a parent with like a weird, boring office job never actually knew what our parent did? Um, or even like if we knew our parent's title, we still didn't know what they did all day. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that was the intent, but I found that very sweet looking back at it. I think that was definitely part of it, particularly those episodes when um, Hal was like, looking for new work and he's just going to these anonymous office buildings and they're just they're so obtuse you don't know what's going on and then one of them is uh god what was it it was like a um it was like a front for the fbi and they wanted him to be an informant and just like looking at the place it's like this just looks like an office it's like they're all kind of the same aren't they yeah um, and I, the only thing we know about Hal's career for sure is that he is not a professional, thus he is not a doctor, lawyer, accountant, anything that requires professional certification, because there was that one uh, really hilarious episode in poker where Stevie's father, Abe, invites him over, and Hal is notably the only white guy there, and he feels so uncomfortable, and the joke is, your friends don't respect me because I'm not a professional. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a really funny subversion. Um, and I, I'll admit, I mean, I was pretty young when that episode occurred, but I was like, oh no, this isn't going to turn into a reverse racism thing, is it? <laughs> yeah. um, and I really did love um, how Hal was just so childish. Uh, and you actually did get to see that it wasn't always just comedy. A uh, big important thing about Hal's character is that he comes from money uh, and that his parents never liked Lois. Uh, they called her lowest common denominator. Um, and so you see all the time Hal's need to rebel from his very waspy upbringing. You know, he had his painting sage, he had his roller skates, and just Hal has that little kid need to kind of break free of expectations. And I thought Brian Cranston was so good at just going over the top. Like, and he, he wasn't an unknown before this. I mean, he was a guest star on every show you could name. I think he played two different guys on Murder, She Wrote. Uh, and, Probably. And he was famously Dr. Tim Watley on Seinfeld. Uh, but this is what really uh, propelled him as... Uh, as a comedic guy, but he did have that great dramatic background as well. He was uh, he was on the X Files and just super disturbing on the X Files. So um, that's that is what led to him uh, doing Breaking Bad. But I did feel like there was such a kind of goofy nature to like, oh, the dad from Malcolm in the Middle is making meth now. It's like he's always been a good actor, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it really branded him in the future. And uh, when I was reading up on some of the production for this. Uh, series, it was really interesting to find out that they didn't really know what to do with Hal initially. It was actually Brian. Well, they had an idea, but it was originally that he was going to be this ghostly presence who wasn't actually going to be in the show. He'd be like the the classic absent dad. Uh, but then it was Brian Cranston's idea to sort of play him as someone who's not just a ghost, but rather just very fearful and sort of a, a man child almost. And when he came in and acted that way, they started writing it for him. Uh, so I found out that he actually shaped that role directly, which I think speaks to a lot of how good he was on that show. Yeah. And I mean, what a great thing uh, to come of that, because if if he had kind of if the character had turned out to be the absent uh, kind of, like you said, ghostly father, 
Uh, I'm sure there's an element of comedy to that, but we wouldn't have gotten treated to just how amazing his chemistry was with Jane Kaczmarek. I mean, what a funny TV couple. And I think what is most hilarious about them is just their utterly ravenous sex life. I think there's a joke at some point about them having sex 14 times a week. Uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's brought up in front of Hal's friends and they all sort of rolled their eyes. And like one of the friends is like, no, I've shared a room with these people. This is what they do. Yeah, and it's it's also um, kind of uh, telling when you're poor and you have nothing else to do, like that is how you pass the time. It's just having sex. And you know what? Good for Making them. Making babies, clearly. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole series ends, the final, the final joke on it, even though they've got a son who's in their mid to late 20s, uh, they are pregnant with a sixth child. And uh, you know what? Hal, consider a vasectomy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like they're kind of stretched thin with five, so. Uh, well, I, I do think uh, that that does give us a great opportunity to talk about Lois, uh, Jane Kaczmarek. Um, I think the character of Lois is so fascinating. When you look a lot at um, less reviews, but more wikis and TV trips and such, you see how polarizing Lois is. Um, some people see her as this horrible, abusive bully, and others see her behavior as justified. Um, and I, I don't want to say that I think it can be both, but um, with Lois, you do see the cracks that come from under the stress of being on the financial fringes. Um, you know, all her outbursts, you see this woman who's just so desperate to keep her family on track. And if it weren't directed in a comedic fashion, you could almost call it a tragedy performance from Jane Kaczmarek. Um, and I think, again, that shows how strong she is, that shows how strong the show is, and how... Yeah, and I think there's something really to be said about how she kind of holds that family together. Um, there was actually an interesting comment from Jane Kaczmarek about the show, and she's heard those comments about how Lois is kind of you know, possibly abusive and, and it's not a, dis or it's like a dysfunctional family there because of Lois and, or she's part of it. And she points out, you know, even though there's a lot of yelling and arguing every night, that family is eating together around the dinner table. Those kids are, you know, they're making their way through school and they're getting into trouble, but they're still able to make something of their lives. They're not hopelessly lost. And when you see them in the outside world, you can see some of the, the values instilled by them into them by Lois and it's it's a tough spot for someone to be like that, not just because of the financial strain, but like anyone raising that many kids, that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And um, there, every episode I find pretty much from start to finish had a good mix of the internal dynamic of the family and then also portraying how the family interacts with the outside world. And any time that it just becomes the episode becomes focused on how marginalized they are and they get insulted by a stranger or by one of their peers. It's always Lois who's like, you know what? This family might be garbage, but they are my garbage. And she is so fiercely protective of her family. And it, it is kind of that thing like, you know, you can, I can insult my friends or I can insult my family, but you can't insult my friends and family. And how internally she might be the monster, but externally she is the savior of that family. I think that's a big part of like that new wave of working class sitcoms you mentioned earlier where they do argue and fight with each other a lot. It's not like other shows where it's the happy family getting into hijinks. This is a family that butts heads, but when they're faced with that outside world, 
they really need to band together because really they, at the end of the day, that's all they can really count on is their family backing them up. There's one episode I really liked where Lois's birthday rolls around and everyone forgets because of course they do. And they take her out to, uh, or no, she ends up going to the batting cages on her own. And uh, Hal actually buys a kid's birthday cake and all the boys show up to try and cheer her up. And it doesn't quite work. But when these party clowns show up to give the family some some crap, they get into a big fight and they all have to literally fight as a family together. And that actually reaches Lois because they're fighting for her and what those clowns said about his wife or said about Lois. And that's uh, it's a nice little picture of how they band together to fight the outside world. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we should talk a little bit about the kids. I mean, um, we've already talked a decent amount about Malcolm and being uh, both the voice of reason and the shit heel. Uh, you know who I would compare his character a lot to is actually um, Michael Bluth. Uh, the kind of, I'm the voice of reason, uh, but that when he self-appoints himself a little bit too much as the martyr of the family and thinking that no one else in his family knows anything, uh, and that's sometimes where the best comedy comes from. That said, I like that the show doesn't punish Malcolm too much for for being arrogant. Uh, it's uh, It always knew when to pull back on that. Uh, sometimes Malcolm was right and he got to tell, especially a character from outside the family, like, no, you're crazy. Yeah, I, I liked... You know, he learned those little lessons, and I think it's a big thing about too often we see the genius characters get presented as blameless and like they always know what's right. And in the end, they're the geniuses, right? Because they're they're brilliant. But Malcolm, like the arrogance thing is a great example because that's a character flaw, one that was seen very keenly by everyone else in his family, and they're ready to pull him down to earth whenever he gets on his high horse. Yeah. I think um, I, I've said this a lot about comedy writing in general, and I think with comedy, you always have to balance relatability and likability, and sometimes relatable isn't always likable. But um, I, I'm a firm believer that someone doesn't always have to be likable in order to be sympathetic. And with Malcolm, especially if you were a gifted kid, and I'm not hugely into gifted kid discourse, uh, but I, I was a gifted kid who didn't always fit in and you know, uh, went from being in an advanced reading group one year to being put in. A, um, a remedial class and you do feel like oh my god the whole world is against me no one understands me and then you even start getting this weird complex of like well you know I'm just miserable all the time because I see how the world really is and then you look at other people and it's like you know what they are able to be positive and have fun and they might actually be onto something so I really feel like Malcolm captures that angst and that self-pity so well. And you also see he knows when he's gone too far and when he's being a monster. And that's also where that break the fourth wall narration comes in. He'll say things like, I know I'm going too far. Yeah. It's like, I, I know I've gone too far, but I can't turn back now because he's clearly committed to it. Oh, yeah. We've, we've all dug our heels in at some point. Uh, so uh, I, I really like Dewey. Like I said, he was my, uh, I think, my favorite character next to Lois. Um, as early as the second season, they really had cemented that he's a huge weirdo. Um, and I do like that because they still kept some of his little kid grossness in. It stopped him from being too precocious, which I think was so smart. Um, you know, there was, I forget if it was the first or second season, but he was literally eating raw meat. <laughs> at barbecue <laughs> yeah. and i was like oh this kid is so gross but it works so well um 
about midway through the series, there was a plot of him, uh, you know, potentially becoming the next Malcolm because he was gifted, although perhaps more artistically gifted than Malcolm. Um, it was interesting because uh, Dewey, Dewey's getting older. What do we do with him? Like, I think they realize he can't just be, uh, he can't just be this cute, weird kid anymore. Um, I'm not sure I liked the premise of the Busey class, um, although I did love the name, uh, call, naming it after Gary Busey. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan of special kid humor, but I think they actually treated it uh, well enough that they're clearly not making fun of developmentally disabled kids, at least. Um, yeah, I, I, for stuff like that, I sort of put it on a curve, right? This is 20 years ago, and for 20 years ago, it's it's not bad. And I appreciated that the kids had some personality. They were characters, uh, especially in other shows. There's this tendency to present kids who have um, some sort of developmental disorder or something as just a collection of symptoms with no real personality. That uh, is really unfortunate. So they were a bit more than that. There was no, I fell off the jungle gym and when I woke up, I wasn't here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, I did like the concept of Dewey not only not repeating Malcolm's pre-adolescence, but also going through the exact opposite and how he did find kind of a place and a sense of meaning in the Busey class. It still felt um, it still felt maybe a little cruel to him, but it was certainly good of not having the Krellboy in class 2.0, which I think, you know, had gotten old and the show was growing up with this viewer with its viewers. I don't think it needed another set of Krellboy in class skits. Yeah, and it's interesting that you compare those two things because like they're literally two different classes of people and it's how school will set you up for the rest of your life. Malcolm was put in the gifted class, so he's there with all these kids who feel like, oh, we're we're fast tracked to be, you know, the leaders of society. We just have to get through school. Whereas in Dewey's class, it's like, nope, you're in the special needs class, so you're gonna be, you know, your life is basically ruined now because you're never gonna achieve your dreams. Yeah. Um I, uh, so I actually have no notes on Reese, um, which might oh, be because God. Reese just didn't interest me as a character. I mean, it wouldn't be an episode without Reese. I just, there's not a lot about him that stuck. Uh, do you have anything on Reese? I have so much about Reese. Reese is, he's one of those characters who's, I think, so hard to like because he's such annoying kid and he does bad things all the time but there's this tragedy to him that i think is so central to him as a character that we don't see in the other characters i mean he's gifted as well he's a brilliant cook and that's his special skill but aside from that he's just this mean bully who's got no friends and no one really in his life and his family just kind of tolerates him i mean they love him but he's clearly the one that's doesn't quite fit in and He's not that bright, but he's bright enough to know that there's no real place in the world for someone like him. What I did always like about Reese, um, because if you dealt with bullies growing up, you know, you probably got told something like, oh, you know, they, they might be really sad inside. And I did feel like that was something with Reese. You see so much, uh, like you said, tragedy in him and how even he was antagonistic to Malcolm. But even, say, at school, you know, he was a bully because he was on the fringes. Like you see in the very first episode, they get made fun of for being poor. And that's why he lashes out. And he becomes a tough kid as a way to overcompensate. You know, he knows from an early age that he's not smart like Malcolm. So what does he have? He has toughness. Um, what I think 
I have written down that my favorite episode of the series is season two's therapy. And um, I really like that therapy shows that just because Reese is a bully, he has no idea how to manipulate. And uh, therapy is all about Malcolm's ability to manipulate. He's uh, basically faked a great deal of trauma to get into therapy and get out of doing uh, certain class activities. Reese picks up on the scheme and basically decides to become not even a textbook uh, therapy patient. To be just kind of what he's seen in B movies and pretend that Reese isn't here right now. This is Davy, and uh, basically ends up exposing Malcolm's ruse because he's so bad at manipulation. I also, to this day, still always remember Malcolm's line read in that episode that. I wish you'd spend more time at home and less time at the racetrack. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. How Lois plays along, like, yeah. <laughs> That's just so, that was such a great moment. Yeah. Uh, so Francis is the, the final note. And I, you always have um, Francis to fill in the wacky element because as much as, um, you know, Malcolm had a lot of wackiness, it was very grounded in reality. And sometimes, you know, wouldn't necessarily get into sitcom-y moments, you know, the, the sit being situations, um, you know, it was often more about tension and envy and, uh, you know, the dynamics with your friends. Francis, being that he was far away, was always there to fill in the sitcom wackiness quotient. You know, he was their Captain Wacky. And with him being away from the family, it was your excuse to have someone who's more a series of sketches. Um, I, I do sometimes think that the in season two, the move of Francis to the logging camp in Alaska, and especially after that, the dude ranch. Season three. Season three. Yes, you're correct. Um, and then after that, the dude ranch. That was a sign of slight decline, uh, especially the dude ranch, because it was the writer's way of signaling like we're getting bored with this situation. At least what I can say about the logging camp is it worked because it was also centered around Francis's coming of age. He got married and Piyama was a really fully fleshed out character for not appearing that much. Uh, but the dude ranch to me was just a step too far into wacky town. Um, I did love the episode in which the German couple uh, was, uh, they were playing host to a porn film crew and uh, Francis was trying to protect them from it. And as it turns out, they were very sex positive and loved porn. Um, yeah, that was a surprise. It was cute. Um, but it, uh, it, it says a lot that they kind of pushed Francis aside after that. And you don't see him quite as much in the later seasons, but you find out in the finale that he's just been working this boring idyllic office job all along, which is a really great conclusion for the character. Yeah, and I think about Francis, especially in season four, it felt like that was the end of his character. His whole thing was rebellion. I mean, they all rebelled to some degree, but he was literally shipped off to military school because they couldn't handle him. And his whole just refusing to fit in or conform anywhere was pushed to its limit. Because when he went to that dude ranch, he actually did fit in. He did a pretty good job and he became very important there. And that was just kind of it for the character. I mean, eventually he things fall apart there and he gets an office job. But they think that has a lot to do with the fact that um, Christopher Masterson kind of took a step away from the series and uh, a step away from acting, I should say. He did direct an episode, but uh, so they just sort of downplayed Francis a little bit in those later seasons. And I mean, it was probably a good call on his part because there was very little left for Francis at that point. Yeah, with, with a show that lasts seven seasons, you do expect that at some point someone from the principal cast is going to move on. 
And I know that um, in uh, contracts are often done in increments of six or seven. And it's usually say like after the sixth season that you get a huge pay bump. So it makes sense that at some point you're going to see someone kiss a goodbye. And because it's a family show, the only one that it really makes sense with is the grown son who's in his 20s. And really, like, we had gotten all the humor we could out of Francis. And it helped that everywhere he was, he had a comedy setting around him. He had... Um, he had his own supporting cast. Oh, yeah. and he only, There were so many characters that were just for him. Arrival, every, everywhere he went, he had uh, Commandant Spangler. Uh, he had Lavernia from the logging camp. And then uh, Gretchen and Otto really were more uh, friendly bosses than anything. But it was just like, yeah, he, he ushered in a new little clown car full of cast. Yeah, and it, it made it feel like he was in this tiny little pocket universe. And if I, I actually liked whenever he visited the family because it was like, it almost felt like a crossover, but like obviously they're from the same show. Oh, it's just like right. it's like oh, here's Francis to play with the main cast, and we don't get to see that every day. And also, just like seeing how much his very presence unnerves Lois, like it's so fascinating because I mean, uh, I've known people like that whose presence just bothers someone, and everything they say, like whether it's their tone or their choice of a single word, like you just know there's tension brewing underneath and for never being really on a set together, say for a couple times a season, uh, Chris Masterson and Jane Kaczmarek really have that down. Yeah. It was just, I loved seeing their dynamic because they just played off each other so well. And you get the sense that, you know, clearly raising Francis changed Lois a lot. And, uh, he was also really good with, uh, Cloris Leachman, the way he just hated her. Just, well, unbridled hatred for his grandmother. That was really funny. Yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, we talked a lot about characters, but that I loved so much about Malcolm in the Middle when I rewatched it in my 20s was how many uh, high concept episodes they had, which is not to say they had a ton. I think they had just the right amount because at the time I was rewatching it, Community was like the biggest show on my campus. Everyone was really into community. And I've always said that what I felt was community's downfall was they became way too reliant on high concept episodes to the point where you watch the first season. What is this show? This is not the show I ordered. Um, and some of the greatest uh, high concept episodes of Malcolm for me, uh, Bowling. I would go as far as to call Bowling a masterpiece. So it's the one where the family goes bowling and you don't find out what actually happens. You find out the two hypotheticals of what would happen if Hal took them bowling versus what would happen if Lois took them bowling. It's a really great demonstration of a very simple theme, the grass is always greener. Um, but the way it uses parallel timelines, the way it uses its cinematography, it was entertaining as a kid. It is entertaining in my 30s. Yeah, it just it was such a huge feat. And I know they won two Emmy Awards for that one. And just visually it was so striking and so different. Like some of the transitions were so clever. Like you'd see Hal dragging off one kid, and then it would cut to Lois standing somewhere else with another kid. And it was just those different moments in the night were just overlapping like that so seamlessly. Uh, which on that note, watching the bowling episode was so funny for me because I know that Malcolm has to do bumper pool in one of the realities because he's so bad at it. And I did not know that that was a thing. And as a kid who was bad at bowling, I could have used that. 
<laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I know I went bowling one time and I saw another lane that was using the little bumpers and I was like, why can't I use that? That would be so helpful. And when, when the pandemic is declared over, a thing that I'm not going to take for granted again is bowling alleys. There's nothing more pleasant to me than a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the first person I've ever heard say that. But I know, you can really smell I, the small town off of me. <laughs> I, I celebrate your bowling love. Uh, yeah, that, that does make you think, and this isn't necessarily with all the high concept episodes, but the show uses fantasy really, really well, because again, it's a show that is extremely grounded in reality. So any chance that it gets to kind of mess around with that, um, it does it really effectively. Another one, and this is not a really high concept episode, but when Lois takes dance classes and she envisions herself as this amazing dancer and she's so graceful and she's borderline falling in love with her dance instructor. And then the, she sees the video footage of herself and she's terrible and clumsy. And as it turns out, the instructor was trying to get rid of her by moving her to another class. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And as a dancer who doesn't like seeing videos of themselves dancing, it, it hits to your core. But it's also just like, it's so lovely because you get to see Jane Kaczmarek be two completely different people. You get to see her be the person she sees herself as and then the person that the world sees her as. And I think the conclusions of that episode was really sweet as well, because then Hal wants to dance with her. And it's, there was this whole like jealousy subplot. He kind of was sad. His wife was going out somewhere out every night. But even though he knows what she dances like, he wants to dance with her. And, you know, he's not good either, but they're a perfect fit. Yeah, although he's very good at roller skating. Yeah, that, that kind of didn't make sense. It's like he's a great roller skater, but as soon as you take the wheels, he is no longer so graceful on his feet. Which, uh, on that note, have you seen the various Breaking Bad sketches in which uh, you see Dean Norris and Betsy Brandt put in um, put in the confession video from Walter White and its video footage of Hal on roller skates? <laughs> no, I haven't, but it sounds pretty good. There are so many really good uh, fan videos of um, Malcolm Breaking Bad crossovers. Um, another high concept episode I really love was If the Boys Were Girls, which again, I think is centered around a very simplistic theme, which is boys and girls have different challenges as parents. You know, I, I come from a family of boys and girls. And, you know, my mom always said, like, you know, my mother told me boys are easier than girls. And then I had uh, boys and uh, boys and girls. And there are different challenges to both. And um I mean, I always felt sorry for Lois admittedly being in a family with only sons, but uh, again, grass is greener. Yeah, definitely. What I like about that episode is it was uh, the idea actually came from the daughter of, I think, a costume designer. Uh, they even gave her a credit, which I thought was really sweet because she was, I think, nine or 10. And it was just one of, such a great little idea. And the episode was... Uh, very strange. <laughs> I, I like the sort of flash between the different mall trips because uh, a lot like bowling and a lot like you said, it's very much the grass is greener on the other side. And uh, there is no fantasy life basically for these characters. It's all, it's all bad. Yeah. It's what a conclusion. It's all bad. It, it's also one of those things, like I said, it's a very childlike thing. And I, I think I, I didn't know that story about it coming from a crew member's daughter. And I think that's so sweet and also so appropriate because that is, at least for me, the type of thing you think about when your kid is like, oh my God, what what would my mom's life have been like if I had been born a boy? Or, you know, what would my life be like if I had a, a brother instead of a sister? And 
uh, you can turn that into an episode that answers a lot of big questions. Uh, but I think my, my one of my other favorite high concept episodes is Dewey's Opera, which was directed by Linwood Boomer himself. Um, you know, it's very over the top. And again, it gets uh, it gives them a chance to play in a more fantasy world. Uh, this was also when we were at the point of exploring Dewey as a you know, virtuoso musical prodigy. And um, as much as it was also very, you know, fun and goofy because you've got Hal and uh, Lois singing opera about their mattress and the mattress salesman and stuff, um, it, it also kind of shows the sadness, I guess, of Dewey not really having an outlet uh, for his musical gifts because it's not like they can afford, say, private music lessons and like orchestra camps and stuff every year, but he's basing a musical off of what is going on around him or basing an opera off of what is going on around him. Yeah, and it's it's very much like the show itself, how life inspires art. Like Malcolm in the Middle was inspired by Lidwood Boomer's life. So the fact that Dewey is taking his own life and using it to create art, uh, I think speaks to how you know artists thrive in any sort of environment. And I think good artists reflect that environment back out to the world. So now I guess we come to... Um formulating our conclusions. And I have my idea of when I believe the show peaked. Uh, but Jose, I would really love to hear from you uh, coming off your recent rewatch and discussing what we've discussed when you feel Malcolm in the Middle peaked. Okay, just give me a second here because I want to be able to say the name of the episode. Okay. And I need to look it up for a moment here. This is all no notes. I hope this has been going well because I'm oh, like, no. I'll remember everything. <laughs> it's like sort of. Because I have a very specific episode where I think it peaked. Awesome. I'm excited to see how close together they are. Okay, yes. So I have a very specific vision on where I think Malcolm in the Middle peaked. It's relatively early on in the series. uh, Only season three, actually. Uh, Which isn't to say the show got bad. I just think this is like sort of the the peak of the show in my mind, and it's the episode Lois's Makeover. A lot of this isn't even about Lois's Makeover that hit well with me. It was um, it was the basketball play game that Hal played with his sons. When it starts off, you find out Hal's been dominating his three sons, playing against them in uh, games of basketball, just roughing them up. And eventually, uh, the boys start getting smarter, and they start getting better and uh, Hal starts playing dirty. He starts like knocking them over just so he can keep winning. He can't let his sons win. And then eventually the boys figure out a way to win the game where they all just sort of stand on each other's shoulders like a totem pole. And they punch Hal in the crotch when he's going for a dunk. And then <laughs> the ball gets tossed up. They score the final point. And uh, Dewey has this great line where he's like, the future is now, old man. And they step over Hal's broken body into the sunset. And the reason I think that really works well is because one of the central themes to the show, in my mind, has always been how this family is fighting against the world. And in that moment, they were the brothers had to unite against Hal, who is kind of this symbol of the patriarchy and this old way of doing things like they were just trying to play a game of basketball but this guy is gonna like pull the rug from under them gonna break all the rules just like you know in the real world like stuff that that could happen too the system isn't necessarily built for them and they're 
dreams of the future. So they just decided, you know, the way we're going to win is by working together. And, you know, maybe we have to punch the system in the balls. And they they did it. They organized together. They they fought together and they won together. So when Dewey says the future is now, it's like, yes, this is the future. This is the future Malcolm in the Middle can give us. Help my kids have unionized. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I just thought that was really good because, you know, they had to use a little bit of each boy's skills, Malcolm's brains, Reese's strength, and Dewey's little uh, flourish at the end there. Yeah, and I have, I'm sure that I have seen that gif of the future is now old man as a meme uh, all over Twitter, Tumblr, everything. Uh, and so to that I say, er Eric Persullivan, I'm, you know, if you loved acting, bless, bless you, uh, have a great career, but thank you for your contribution to society. Um, I was interested and curious to see how close together our peaks would be, and they're about a little less than a season apart, but the episode that I believe was a peak was actually written by the same writing duo, uh, Michael Glaberman and Andrew Ornstein, and it is season four's Grandma Sue's, which is uh, when Ida, played by Cloris Leachman, uh, comes over to stay with, uh, with the family. They want her out, uh, and she has tripped and broken her hip on some leaves that Reese did not break up, and she wants to sue her own daughter for all she's worth. Uh, and during that, Lois has also just found out that she is pregnant uh, with, with uh, the baby Jamie, who would eventually show up. And uh, in the end, it's also resolved because uh, the lawyer finds out that they don't have insurance and that he would basically get nothing out of them, which... Um, uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I remember uh, I, I never wanted to be a litigator. I uh, always wanted to go into criminal justice, and uh, then I did not do that. But I remember looking at that and like, oh my god, the law actually, it rarely ends dramatically. It is often little things like that, like, oh, this family is not worth suing. And I, I think that was a way of, like, the family's own... Uh, class status was actually their savior because it's not worth it to sue poor people um also just they really made uh grandma an unapologetic awful person they never tried to redeem her that was her at her absolute worst but man cloris leachman really just held on um you also had francis and piana in person there so i just think the episode had a little bit of everything it really got to lois's pathology and I think it, if it were me, I would say like you could have concluded the series on Lois finding out she was pregnant with Jamie and it would have worked just as well. I, I am glad that where they ended it, it was, you know, the natural conclusion of Malcolm graduating high school. But I, I would say that, say, Lois finding out she's pregnant with a fifth child is is a really kind of peak of this is everything the show is about. And the show did end with her finding out she has sixth child on the way so i think you kind of got that one on the head yeah so I, I guess i mean you've already said it, it continued on to be quite good but um you know how would you rate the post-peak performance and would you recommend watching the whole thing start to finish or as one-offs or only during a particular period you know i would definitely say watch it where the peak is everything from the beginning to the peak is pretty solid and good. And afterwards, 
you know, it gets, I think, still think season four and five were pretty good. And I know a lot of people commonly think the birth of Jamie is where the peak was. Um, I think that's a bit debatable because there were good episodes in seasons five, six, and seven. And then there were some that weren't. <laughs> there were a couple that were just not great. And I think it's a show that See, I see. I'm of of several minds. On the one hand, there are definitely episodes you can skip, but on the other hand, it's only seven seasons. Only seven seasons. That's still a lot of time. But there's there's enough good in all seven seasons that it sort of feels like you may as well just watch all of them, so you get a better understanding of the whole series. I would say my my approach to it is it's a roulette show. It is a show where you could pick any random episode and put it on and probably have a good time. It is probably not necessary to watch it from start to finish, but if, if you chose to, I don't think you would walk away feeling like, oh, the, those last three seasons were just a waste of my time. Um, I always think with comedies, sometimes the first season can be a bit of a write-off because it sometimes takes a while to find its rhythm. I don't think this was the case with Malcolm, but I do think it was strongest from seasons two to four. Um, yeah, definitely. The one thing about um, Jamie being born was it signaled a bit of a dip into a little more wackiness um, and not just wackiness, but also expanding the world of the family to varying degrees of success. So um, sometimes it was just something as simple as what if they were all on a road trip and got stuck in traffic? But, or what if they were on a houseboat? Those are the more reasonable things. But then there are things like what if Reese joins the army? And uh, what if the whole family goes to Burning Man and they all like it? Like that was a little bit like you know, again, it's it's not the worst thing that a sitcom can do, but it did signal a little bit of like, are they running out of things for them to do? Um, but I mean, it was, it was still a very balanced show. I would say post peak, it was still pretty good. Um, so yeah, I think we've agreed that Malcolm in the middle, uh, we were in somewhat the same general area. Jose believes it peaked a little earlier than I did, but I also think your opinion on the third season is very valid. Um, it's a, almost a rule of thumb that almost any comedy series peaks in the third season. Yeah, third, fourth. Occasionally you'll get fifth or sixth, but those are like for the really long running shows. Yes. So uh, thank you, Jose, so much for being with us today. Um, before we say goodbye, I would love for you to tell our listeners um, you know, where we can find your content and how we can support you. Sure. So you can find my content on a website called YouTube. You just have to put in my name, J-O-S-E, and I should be the top result. If you see a picture of a, a lovely cartoon Blue Jay, that is me. Uh, if you want to look up my video on Malcolm in the Middle, it's called One Family Versus the World, a retrospective on Malcolm in the Middle. And yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter. And if you're feeling super generous, there's Patreon and YouTube memberships. Um, and yeah, maybe you'll see me on future episodes. That would be exciting. Well, we wouldn't see you, but we would hear you. <laughs> sure. I, I like to think they're seeing me in their mind's eye. Yes. Um, well, as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rudy. You can find me on Twitter at Breganism. That's like veganism with a B-R-E-E. -E. Uh, new episodes are out every two weeks, and you do not want to miss them. I hope you don't want to miss them. But we're going to be talking about King of the Hill, Mighty Ducks, So You Think You Can Dance, The Office, and so much more. So thank you for listening. Take it easy.
remember, this is a magic buoy. Mermaids are drawn to it, and they'll grant your every wish. But they won't show up if there's more than one person here. Just leave. Don't insult me.